Well, this is the first time in a year and a half that I haven't said, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis. So, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. All 66 books of the Bible fit together to present one unified message of salvation. At the same time, every book of the Bible has something unique to add to our understanding of the gospel. So we can expect Colossians to interlock with Paul's other letters and the rest of the Bible. But we can also expect Colossians to present its own unique angle to the gospel that we so dearly love. Now until studying for this particular series... I did know a good bit about Colossians. We had to go through it in seminary, and I'd, I think heard Sandy preach on this when I first came to Morganton 20-some uh, years ago. But I don't think I really grasped the relevance of the issues facing the saints in that city to us today. And so this is kind of an introductory sermon it's going to give, uh, we're going to jump a little bit to some various verses in the book of Colossians. Um, but it's really trying to prep you to be ready for the rest of the book. To begin with, I did not realize that Colossae was a small town of relative insignificance compared with other cities to whom Paul wrote letters like Rome or Corinth or Ephesus. Colossae was not a thriving metropolis. In many ways, it was not all that different than Morganton. It was a market town that you would pass through on your way to other surrounding cities. Now, it was not too far from the resort town of Hierapolis, or today called Pamukkale, where there were hot springs. It was a resort destination. These hot springs supposedly had healing powers kind of coming up from the ground beneath. Nor was it uh, uh, like an even closer town that you're familiar with, and that is Laodicea. Um, and that's known to us primarily in the book of Revelation uh, for being lukewarm. Colossae is a small town quietly situated next to some beautiful mountains. Again, sounds kind of familiar to us. J.B. Lightfoot, a, commentary, a commentator on this, said Colossae was the least important church to which any epistle of St. Paul was addressed. Pretty important, pretty cool. It's nice to know that a famous apostle who debated with scholars in Athens, who spent years in places like Ephesus and Corinth, cared enough about the saints in Colossae to write them a letter. Maybe I'd learned this and forgotten this. But it was somewhat of a surprise to me to learn that Paul did not plant the church of Colossae. It was founded by one of his assistants, Epaphras. Most likely when Paul was staying in Ephesus, 100 miles away. Colossians 1, 7 and 8, you can look at that. You know, it's nice if you have your Bible and kind of jump around with me a little bit. 
just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Ephesus was the hub. That's where Paul went to kind of start his ministry. He was there for a pretty long time. But as the church in Ephesus was strengthened, other laborers were sent out to the surrounding regions. And Epaphras just happened to land in Corinth. Or Colossae, excuse me, teaching Corinth in Sunday school. And there a small community of believers began to grow up. We also know that Paul had never even visited Colossae. He really didn't know many of the saints who were in this congregation. Everything that he learns, he learns from reports from others. And as he writes this particular letter, he is in prison. Now, because Paul was in prison a lot, it's a little bit difficult to know which prison he was writing from. Uh, most of the... Uh, most people land that he was in Rome in the year 60 A.D. This is kind of significant because in like 61 A.D. there was a huge earthquake that hits that area in Colossae. Maybe even like destroys much of the city during that time. So There are some uh, commentators who think that Paul may have been in some earlier imprisonment, maybe even in Ephesus. But uh, I don't think it's that critical. We just need to know that he is in chains as he writes this letter. And in that day, visiting a prisoner could get you into trouble. Philemon, which is also a book that was written at the same time of, of Colossians, uh, Paul writes these words, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. So apparently, Epaphras was in Colossae. He's going to be experiencing some questions and needs counsel from Paul. He goes to Paul with his, his troubles, and for some reason, he gets imprisoned himself. So since Epaphras cannot return with the solution to the problems that they're having, Paul addresses those problems in a letter and sends it by someone else. So in the book of Colossians, we have the solution to the problems going on in the Colossian church. But we, what we don't have is a clear statement of those problems themselves. So it's kind of, you know, among the scholarly world, there's this debate over what exactly is the Colossian heresy? What is it that they're dealing with? Uh, and I, I remember learning about this in seminary, and when I learned that, like, we don't know exactly what that heresy was, I just went, okay, move on, you know. And so I never really thought about it that deeply. I should have. I'm actually going to take a good bit of time today to try to introduce to you what we do know about that heresy. And I think that as we learn what we do know about it from the book of Colossians, we will be better, better situated to apply the medicine of Colossians to our particular struggles today. Okay? At the heart of the heresy... And this is, this is really important that you start trying to wrap your mind around this. At the heart of the heresy was a desire for a more intense spiritual experience. Think about that. A more intense spiritual experience. Now make no mistake, Christianity makes some pretty bold promises. 
Jesus says in John 10.10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Right? Abundant life sounds pretty good to us. And the Colossians had believed that gospel message. But after almost a decade of their conversion to Christianity, the Colossians' lives did not feel all that abundant. They were disappointed. They were hoping for more in their Christian experience. And as soon as I realized that, it was like light bulbs went on, and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is what everybody in my congregation deals with. Americans are inundated with promises of fulfillment. Sex, drugs, music, entertainment, gadgets, pills, you name it. We are taught to crave, even demand, more and more fulfilling experiences. And if something does not deliver, we will move on to something else, or we'll look for something that is new and improved. Those messages affect our hopes for the religion that we are in. We want a religion that will deliver a powerfully fulfilling spiritual experience. Is that not true? We want to be elevated into glorious visions of God that overwhelm our soul. Wouldn't it be nice to open up your Bibles and see angels descending? We also want a religion that will conquer the evil in our soul. And the religion that we are given does not always seem to deliver, at least not as quickly and as powerfully as we had hoped. And I mentioned last week that there is a connection between this book in Colossians and the book of Genesis, which we've been studying, and here it is. The Colossians had been told that there would be this hope of fulfillment and abundant life and faith in Jesus Christ. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived and died clinging to a hope that did not fully deliver in this life. And yet they remained steadfast in that hope. Colossians, some of them, in their yearning, were beginning to move beyond Christ. That's the issue. Now, thankfully, the Colossians do not abandon Christ. They could have just rejected him altogether and moved on to some other religion or some other faith entirely. But they didn't do that. What they were being tempted to do was something far more subtle. Just simply add a little bit to your faith. Now, when it comes to Christ, when you try to add something to Christ, you subtract from Christ. And this is where the heresy begins. It is healthy for you to want to experience more of Christ. But that yearning must be tempered 
with an acceptance of your present imperfect experience of God. And our yearning must not lead us away from Christ as we are patiently waiting for the the final installment, the fullness of our Christian experience. Douglas Moo writes this, The false teachers were apparently suggesting that Christians needed to go beyond the gospel that Epaphras had taught the Colossians in order to experience spiritual fullness. And if you've read Colossians already, you know that he uses that term fullness on several occasions. Their hunger for more began to drive them to believe that, and here's I like to use this word, ordinary faith in Christ was not enough. You see, Paul basically says, Jesus Christ is glorious. And you're going to see that in in the book of Colossians, some of the most exalted statements about how great Christ is. And the reason why he's doing that is not to say to them, oh, you Christians, if you just do such and such right, you can have it right now. He's basically saying, don't doubt Christ because your experience is not all that you want. He doubles down. No, Christ really is everything. And your ordinary faith in Christ is all that you need. It will result in fullness when Jesus returns. The fullness of your hopes will not be realized in this life. That's the point. That doesn't mean that you should go beyond Christ to look for them. Now, three times in chapter 1, Paul mentions this hope. He's thankful for their faith in Christ and their love that they have for one another. And he says that that faith and love are grounded in this hope. Look at verse 5. He says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. He's like, this. your whole faith is grounded on this hope that is laid up for you in heaven. This is, this is why you believe. Because you have this hope. And since that hope is kept in heaven... It is secure. It cannot be tarnished. Okay? Their present lives may not look like they've achieved that hope, but it doesn't mean that the hope is not secure. That's the point. Look down again at verse 23. Paul gives his a hint as to his true concern. He says. He doesn't want them shifting from the hope of the gospel. Right? He doesn't want them to like say, ah, that's not a good enough, let me go on to something else. He doesn't want them to change the hope, lessen it. He just wants them to stay fixed on that hope. In verse 27, Paul explains to them that this hope is really nothing more than Christ living in them. He says in verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay? See, their discontentment was a dangerous thing. They began to add new elements. 
And in, when they were doing that, they, without even thinking about it, were reducing their confidence and their, their, their vision of the perfection of Christ. Because if Christ couldn't do all this for them right now, then it must be found somewhere else. Now, the additions that they added to their faith, and I'm only going to dabble into them right today in this uh, lesson. We'll go through them more fully as we go through the book of Colossians. But uh, the things that they were dabbling in were varied. And this is what makes it so hard to try to nail down the Corinthian heresy. I mean, I said it again. The Colossian heresy. Because they... there were so many different aspects of it that, that it wasn't obvious this is the one thing that they were saying that was wrong. We do know that the Colossian her- heresy included elements of Judaism mixed with Greek mysticism. Some kind of mixture going on. Look at Uh, Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at 16 through 21, but again, just touching it, not going into all the details, but just to help you understand what's happening. Paul says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. So, what was happening is that some people were saying that only if you followed this specific diet... Would you prepare yourself for a greater fullness of experience of God? And the reason why you're not experiencing this fullness is because you're not not taking on this particular diet. A second condition had to do with the observance of holy days and seasons. He says, with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. And this is where we begin to see that the Jewish legalism was mixed with Christian mysticism. Now, it was commonly believed during that day that there were unseen forces existing in the world, whether you think spiritual or just coming up from the bottom of the earth, or, you know, they had this this idea that there were forces that move things. Even the, 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 like, when we think of astrology today, the the alignment of the planets, various things that, that were forces in the world that move things. And these forces were believed to affect the uh, people's lives, the destiny of men. And so it was natural then on some days to think that some days when the planets were aligned certain ways or the moon was at a full moon or something, that those were days that were more spiritually juiced And you would want to observe those days to kind of tap into that power. Some days more uh, sacred than others. It's interesting, Paul doesn't deny that. He doesn't say, well, stupid, you know, get rid of those. He just, he did basically just says that observing those days won't get you what you want. Again, I'm just tapping, you know, dabbling. A third condition had to do with treating yourself harshly. He says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. Now, asceticism is, is like is hurting yourself for the purpose of somehow appeasing spiritual realities such that you will prepare yourself for a greater spiritual experience. Now, Paul is not 
afraid to say that he beats his own body to try to make it his slave. But he doesn't beat his body for greater spiritual experience or greater uh, power from God. That's not why he would do that. You know, Jesus says that, you know, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He doesn't mean go around and cut your hand off, literally. He's just saying take your sin seriously. But some of the Colossians were beginning to think that in one way or another, if they treated themselves harshly, they could achieve greater victory over their sin. And Paul says in, in verse 23 of chapter 2, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Another condition that had, had to do with the reverence that people had towards angels. He says, the worship of angels and going into detail about visions. Now again, I'm going to have to take some time to explain this. It took me a while to try to figure out what's going on. But the gist is this. You want to spiritually travel through the heavens to gain ever more powerful experiences of god and the angels would assist you and even usher you into those higher levels of existence now this you think well that's just silliness but it may have even started from the bible we read in genesis that jacob had this vision of jacob's ladder with angels ascending and descending up into heaven on it so maybe the angels do have something to do with taking us up into the glory of heaven And again, during the apocryphal period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, books that were not truly biblical books, but they were spiritual books that people read, there's one called the Book of Enoch. And that basically is a book talking about collections of visions of going up higher and higher into these spiritual experiences. There's good reason why it's not scripture, but it's also helpful to you know that it was very popular during this time. Now, the Colossians were probably not explicitly worshiping angels, but they did think that the angels were the ones that would take them up higher into heaven. Paul also says in verse 20, and again in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul refers to the elemental spirits of the world. Again, there's a lot of disagreement as to what those actually are. I think it's safe to say that Paul is again referring to these basic unseen forces in the world that seem to affect our lives. I don't know what we would say in our day. Maybe it would be going to a, you know, a, some kind of spiritual seance or maybe, a, you know, looking for your horoscope or, you know, maybe believing in that genetics are the forces that rule everything or cultural forces. Or, there's a lot of things that we could do in our day, but something is more powerful than just your ordinary faith in Christ. That's the point. The spirit of the Reformation Study Bible says this movement taught that the Colossian Christians were subject to a variety of spiritual forces that needed to be placated through veneration, asceticism, and observance of special holy days. Kind of sums it up. And here's how I would bring this into your life. 
One of the questions of their day, and ours as well, is whether the gospel really has the power to deal with the problems of your life. Every day we are hit, bombarded with the problems of this world. Addictions, gender confusion, mental illness, depression, hostile governments to the gospel, powerful forces of evil, the list goes on. And here's the question. What does your simple faith in Jesus Christ have as an answer to all of those world's problems? That's the point. And I think this, this idea of being a small fish in a big pond actually adds to this. The Colossians were nobodies. They're this small little town. What can we do in the face of the problems of the world? I'm just a small fish in a big pond. What can I do in the face of all this evil? And they were trying to find some way to latch on to have greater influence, greater power, greater fullness of life. How about you? Are you frustrated with the forces of evil surrounding you? And influencing you and your children daily? Are you even frustrated with your faith? Do you want something more? Do you wonder sometimes whether Jesus was just speaking fine words when he said that men might have life and have it abundantly? Well, Paul's answer is given to us in chapter 1, verse 19. For in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. See, we take that as just a nice doctrinal statement about Jesus being fully divine, and it is that. But it fits into the context of them saying, I don't know if Jesus can really be all that I need to give me the fullness of my experience with Christ. I mean, with God. And, and Paul says, no, Jesus is the fullness. All of the fullness of God dwells in Christ. So but he, what he's saying to them is, if you have Christ, your hope in experiencing the fullness of Christ is guaranteed regardless of what your current experiences are right now. Jesus and Jesus alone is the answer. As we study Colossians, we are going to see some of the greatest statements about the person of Christ. It's helpful to know that Paul makes those statements in the face of of doubts and fears that these people are having. And how encouraging to know that we have a book of the Bible dedicated to encouraging and uh, us to endure in our faith, even as a small church in a little town in Morganton, that God says, I care about you enough that I want to encourage you to keep clinging to Jesus. 
And as you're going to see throughout this book, it is the normal and ordinary, yet supernatural and unconquerable, grace and peace that flow from Christ that we need. And so I'm just going to take the rest of this time and just speak about the, the verses 1 and 2, really the last statement uh, in verse 2, where Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now Paul begins all of his letters with this statement. They all say grace to you and peace. In fact, Jonathan Inman uh, up in Asheville, they, they started a church plant there and they call the church grace and peace. You know, it's nice. I like that. But it's because it's so common, because it's in all the letters, because it's so ordinary, it's easy to pass over it as meaningless. Kind of like we say, oh, I hope you have a good day. How you doing today? Hope all's well. But this is precisely Paul's point. You see, it is ordinary faith that latches on to Normal grace, but it is connected to an extraordinary Christ. We are receiving grace from the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells. You see, because Jesus is the fullness of God, you can expect fullness of grace from him. So what do we mean by grace? I read a Puritan writer that I, he's not, I'm not really familiar with him that much, named John Davenant. And uh, he divides grace into three categories, and I thought it was very helpful. So I'm going to just kind of follow his categories. The first grace that he talks about is the grace of acceptance. This is really the fountainhead of all the graces. This is the grace of God being happy with you. It's his favor towards you. This is the grace that only comes from the righteousness that is ours through faith alone. This is justification. You trust in Jesus Christ. He takes all of your sinfulness, places it on the the cross of Christ. He takes all of his righteousness and imputes it to you. And because God the Father looks at you and sees Jesus, he's happy with you. This is the grace of saying that God is no longer my enemy, he's no longer against me, he's for me. Now, to be fair, there is nothing that you can add to the finished work of Christ. You can't get more accepted by beating your body or observing a day. It's all finished in Christ. You can't get more favor than the favor you have trusting in Christ. So that's, in that sense, Paul's not saying when he says grace and peace to you, he's not saying, oh, I hope you have grace. He's saying, he's declaring it. Grace is yours. Which leads us to the second 
Davenant calls this the grace, I'm kind of putting this in my own wording, but the grace of the gifts of God that produce in you holiness. Namely, a new heart and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Everyone who trusts in Christ, it's a simple, ordinary faith in Christ. Young lady asked me, came up here after the service last week and said, how do I, how do I not go to hell? And I said, you want the simple answer? Jesus saved me. That's it. All those who trust in Christ have been given a new heart. Period. It's a new heart. You don't, you don't like make that heart better. It's just there. God's given it to you. It's a gift. All those who are in Christ have been given the Holy Spirit as a permanent resident. You don't get more of the Holy Spirit. It's just He's there. He's dwelling within you. All those who are in Christ have been adopted as God's children. We see that where it says grace and peace from God our Father. Right? You now have access to God, not just as the God of the universe, but as your loving Father. All those who are in Christ have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and been given citizenship in the kingdom of light. These are gifts to everyone here who believes in Jesus Christ. They are yours by birthright. You can't do anything to make them more secure. You trust in Jesus Christ. They are yours. These are the possession of every Colossian believer. And Paul's saying that grace to you. That's what he's talking about. These sorts of things. So when he gives them this greeting slash blessing, he's actually not praying for this. He's actually just stating it. But there is a third category of grace of which Davenant speaks, and I think is true, and, and you want to think of this as well. And that is the grace of the ongoing supply of help from God. Did we not sing a little bit ago, I need you. Every hour I need you. When you are here close by, temptations lose their power. I need you. And God has designed it this way. He doesn't say, oh, you've already got these, these graces given to you, so now you're all alone, man. Just go do it on your own. He's basically saying, yes, you have these graces, but you are also praying into their lives ongoing dispensing of help to deal with your struggles and your weaknesses. But once you understand all three of these categories, you don't look at this as just wishful thinking. If the God who has actually put his favor upon you and the God who has actually given you a new heart and made you his child and imparted, in, given you his Holy Spirit, if that God has done those things, you think he's not going to give you help day to day? But this assisting grace is never perfect in this life. It's sufficient to get all of God's saints to the end. It'll take you all the way to the end. But it's not sufficient to give you everything that you want right now. And we see here how grace and peace go hand in hand. Because you can really divide up peace into a few ways as well. The, the first piece is the internal peace that you have because God is no longer your enemy. You're no longer at odds with God. 
Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And you can't improve upon that peace. It's just there. You can't merit it. You can't, got, you can't like in some way gain greater peace because you observe a holy day or beat yourself up. It's just there. You have peace with God. The second type of peace is, peace is a brotherly peace. That's the peace among the brothers. That among God's people there's love and unity. Now we know this peace is not experienced in fullness because we don't all love each other like we ought to love each other. But Ephesians 2.14 says it very well. He, meaning Christ, is our peace. How can we love one another and have unity? Well, don't go beyond Christ. Don't think there's something else you can do. Just keep believing in Jesus Christ. Fixing your eyes on Him because He is our peace. And then thirdly, peace is what I just call it peace of life. It's wellness. It's wholeness. This is sort of what Jesus was talking about when he talked about the abundant life. You might have life abundantly. I think he really means everything would be well. You could look at your life and think that there is no bad parts to it. It's just all great. This is the sort of, of peace that the Apostle John actually, actually says it's okay to desire in this life. In 3 John chapter 1, he says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, that you may be in good health. As it goes well with your soul. It's not wrong to want that. You know, Nathan Patton struggles with headaches. I don't want him to have a headache again. It's okay to pray for wellness in that. That he would never have a headache. But so far God hasn't answered that prayer, has he? In a sense, this, this peace is something that is yours now in Christ. But only in promise. It is something that you will experience together with all God's saints. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will experience this fullness of, of uh, life with you on the resurrection day. Listen to what Peter says about this in 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Does that sound like some of the things Paul's talking about? Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You don't have it now. In this you rejoice... Though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, one day when you get to glory, the Christian life will be just sheer joy, fullness, Fullness of God, fullness of life, health, beauty, all of that wrapped up in one. But that's not what it is today. 
The Christian life is not riding on the mountaintops. The Christian life is a struggle daily against sin. It is continuing in the ordinary means of grace. Reading the Bible, praying, having the sacraments, faithfully doing those to keep your hope fixed upon the grace that will be given to you in the end. And this is what Paul is wanting the Colossians to be content with. And oh, that's hard. What does it say? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now I find it really encouraging, and this is how we're kind of close this up. I'm pretty convinced that there may not have been any one person who has had a more awesome spiritual experience than Paul. It was an experience, maybe more than one, but at least one, so powerful that Paul was in danger of being arrogant by it. And God chose not to keep giving Paul those spiritual experiences. Instead, what does he give him? Gives him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. We don't know exactly what that thorn was. Maybe some kind of physical ailment to do with his eyes. Maybe connected with some kind of internal spiritual struggle. But rather than remove the thorn, which is what he wanted, God kept it there. And said, my grace is sufficient for you. Listen to what he writes. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but not on not my own behalf, I will not boast, except in my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being too elated... By the surpassing greatness of revelations. Can you ever think about that? You're to be too elated? I'd like to have that problem. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's our question. As we look at the book of Colossians, this is the question you're going to be forced to ask over and over and over again. Am I content with what Christ has given me today? Am I okay with my weaknesses? Am I okay with my struggles? Do you believe 
even though it looks like the world is out of control, that every force in this world, whether you can define it or not, every force in this world bows to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the highest authority in the universe, and nothing in all this world is outside of his control. There is nothing in the universe of which Christ does not say, mine. And so, as we take communion in just a few moments, and at the end of this service, as I pronounce the blessing of grace and peace to you, you need to ask yourself, is this enough for now? You display your faith in God when you say to the world, yeah, I'm being torn and beaten up and struggling, but my Jesus is the fullness of God. You bring him glory when you say that. So think about that as we prepare our hearts for the communion table.